Hi guys, I'm here today with Mike Lane. From humble beginnings working in a family-run business, he has grown and start, started and grown nine businesses, one of which has been listed on the ASX, with over one billion in sales for his business. He's considered an expert in the touring space, has consulted on sales processes, grown teams, and had an amazing talent strategy. Super excited to have him on the, sh on the show today and talk about his success over the years. It's been this young man, and he has had a very, very busy career doing a lot of things concurrently. So super excited to hear what he's been up to. Michael, my man, pleasure to have you on the show. How are you this morning? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. Mate, where did it all begin? How did, you, how did it start? Take us way back to your family origins and tell us about your home life. What was that like? Yeah, no, great question. Great way to start. So... Typical middle-class upbringing. Um, I had a father who worked very hard, long hours. He was one of these people who um, loved working weekends, loved working 24-7 and really set a good example to me on what it was, what hard work looked like. So um, grew up in Sydney, um, went to school in Sydney. It was at a high school that I went to and anyone who's listened to this in Australia may know it was a well-known boarding school here in Sydney called St. Joseph's College. And at that school was a lot of people around me whose their parents had a lot of wealth. Is that um, Augustinian College? No. Okay. No. So, no. But, um, yeah, look, I was fortunate to go to that school and, and, um, and, and be a part of that. And I grew up around people who their parents had a lot of wealth and it rubbed off on me. And silly things like... In the holidays, you go in a friend's private jet to somebody, <laughs> yeah. um, another friend's place, and you know you got to experience some of these amazing things, and that really got me to start to gain some perspective and going, wow, there's a different world out there, and there's some people out there who are living life to a whole different level. So, from an early age, I was in, um, in around that environment, although we didn't grow up in that environment. I was, I had a, a proximity to it, so was fortunate that I some of that rubbed off and I thought there's a better life out there for me if I look to make some different changes and maybe take a different journey. So um, yeah, grew up in uh, Sydney and, and was fortunate to have um, some of those early experiences which changed my mindset very early on. Okay. So going through that, finishing up high school, what did you do next? Look, I was the kind of kid that, you know, even 12, 13, 14 years of age, um, I wasn't buying comic books. I wasn't buying uh, magazines that the typical guys would buy. I would be buying Forbes magazine, Rob Report. I'd be buying those kind of things. I used to love International Boat, which was a magazine that I used to love. And, um, and, and I always wanted to spend my time focusing on all those cool things that one day I would have. So... A lot of that rubbed off on an early age and uh, I'd find myself in my room in boarding school thinking about, oh, I'd love to experience that. I'd love to have that materialistic thing. And, and that was just something that was instilled with me from the age of about 13. So it was uh, a little bit different to a lot of my friends and a lot of their upbringings, I think. <coughs> okay, explain that. You just said your friends were rather well off in their families. Where did you find the things like a rob report? Because that's even with someone who's 
dedicated, Rob Ward isn't a normal thing to be looking after. You go no, maybe, yeah, other other things. But I think the the way I kind of is the best to articulate it is a lot of these guys grew up with wealth, and it was common for them to have a nice car in the garage. It was common for them to go on a private jet. Um, it was not common for me to be a part of that. So when you have an experience or something that's completely outside your norm or your reality and it resonates, it shifts you and it, and it makes you change or um, for some people it didn't, for, for me it really did. So, you know, a lot of my friends who I still talk to today um, have just had that as a norm for them and it wasn't for me. So when you get a taste of it and you like the taste of it, it's something you want to explore further. So it's fair to say that I got sort of tapped on the shoulder um, around this entrepreneurial success thinking um, from a young age and it really hasn't left me, to okay. be fair. So you've got a bit of fire then. What happened next? How did you start to explore that fire? Yeah, look, um, apart from thinking and idolising and uh, wishing that success would come to me, um, I left school. I didn't get the grades that I wanted to get. I didn't get, get accepted into university I couldn't follow 99% of my friends who all went on and were in banking or in law and those traditional successful roles so uh, for me it was taking so a different path you wanted to go to university at that time I wanted to just follow my friends to be honest yeah. I wanted to you know if, if they were all going to uni I wanted to be a part of that um, I remember even trying to go for the most basic university course that they had which was I think it was a Bachelor of Arts degree, and um, which was basically the lowest of the low. And I think you only needed like sixty percent to to get into that. And I didn't, and I didn't get near that. So for me, I quickly realised after school that I wasn't going to be following the normal trend. And for me, it was the best thing that probably ever happened. I had to go roll my sleeves up, I had to go get a job, and I had to figure out this sales thing, or it was going to be a very lean time. So left school, went and got a job straight away, doing various different things. Um, but it was in my first, it was about, I was at the age of 19 where I first started my first business. Um, my father had a car dealership and I quickly figured out that we could put together these service cards and you could buy a service card. We would knock on people's door in the local area and sell them this service card. It was only $60 and it got you a free service and it got you a free oil change. And what we quickly realized is that when we knocked on the door, sold those, when the clients came into the dealership and in that service environment, there was a lot of upsell components. So the average person would come in with a coupon or a, or a ticket and go, hey, here's my free service. And what we quickly realized that the average client coming in with that card we ended up spending $700 per session that they came in or per service. So the service might be free, but then there was all the upsells and all the, you know, you need to change this, your left tires falls, you need to change a brake. So that was a first snapshot into, wow, we can create some value here. Go get some local clients, bring them in. We used to keep, me and my business partner, we used to keep the $60 which was the price of the card. And the dealership was very happy because the average client was spending $700 with them. So, so that was my... Way, that time. 
Say it again. It's the, the initial service is a lost leader for them, but because they always almost always upgrade. Yeah, they always um, there was an average. You know, some people come in and they needed a lot more work on their car. Um, some people come in, you know, just needed the free change, and, and that's all you got. But what we figured out is the average was about seven hundred dollars per client. But what was most important to me was I was out knocking on doors and making sixty dollars every time I sold a card. So. If I went out in the afternoon and I worked a particular area, I could knock on doors. And if I sold five cards, that'd be three hundred dollars for a couple of hours knocking on doors. So nineteen is quite a nice little uh, change. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very different, but it taught me. And I think there's a lot of great success stories out there about people who knocked on doors and the skill set and the and and the stories of having the door slammed on slammed on literally on you. Um, but it had built the muscle for me to be able to go, you know what, I can handle the nose. Um, there's always another house next door. I mean, I'm yet to go to a, uh, a neighbourhood where there was not a house on the other side. So I quickly realised that if I got a no there, I can walk 30 metres and have another crack at it. So my first business, everything was going swimmingly until my father left that business and realised that, the person who came on after that didn't want to do the card thing anymore, didn't see what we, what we had intended for it. So the business literally stopped overnight. But it was a great first step into what running a business and, 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 a, and a great correlation between if I knock on enough doors, I can make some good money out of this. Could we just swing back to that thing where the guy stopped it? What do you think was reasoning for that? Because surely he would have seen that it was a profitable exercise with what he sold from back end of it. He just, what's to be honest, I, I think it might have been an ego thing. I think it might have been, well, this is the boss or the previous boss's son. Let's just have a clean cut and, and leave that. I, I, to be honest, I was yeah. 19. Yeah. Probably, probably not savvy enough to know strategically why someone did that or why they would make that decision. But if I look back, it might have been something where it's like, well, let's just get out with the old and, and we'll move forward with the new. So who knows? It's always fascinating when people leave so much behind because of me, I think. Yeah. Okay. Look, uh, people, people make decisions for their own reasons and um, that one left us scratching our head. Okay. So you've been, had this thing, you've had this great, really decent business as a young man pulled out from under you. What next? Look, um, went and got a job, went and, uh, started doing other things. I mean, I worked for a company called BT Financial Group, a very large investment bank. Um, I started doing some stuff in there, but it really identified quickly to me that I didn't want to be sort of liable. Had you in investment banking with no experience? I started in the mailroom. Um, so I applied for a job as um, someone in the mailroom, I, I, I got that job and within about three to four months, I moved into another department. It was, it was very much a starting or a feeder um, role to moving within the bank. And at that point, I thought, you know what, there's successful stockbrokers out there. Maybe this is the path for me. Um, but to be honest, after 18 months in that, I figured out, you know what, this wasn't for me. I didn't really want to have to answer to somebody else and... I kind of left there and uh, left there and actually went to work again for my father, but in a sales role, selling cars at that time. So 
if you fast forward a little bit, I got to in another dealership, not doing servicing at this time. I'm not selling the servicing cards, but I got in and was starting to do some sales. I really just wanted a salary, to be honest. I really wanted to just get some certainty. That's when things changed, and that's when I went to an evening seminar. I remember I was back, it was um, April, no, it was March 2003. And I was fascinated by somebody on stage talking about and thinking about the stuff that I used to, uh, and talking about the stuff I used to think about. And ultimately I signed up for a program there and that's where this journey kind of altered. <laughs> I'm just actually remembering some, when I, when I first went to business, I think I went to one of your events in Brisbane. One of the early things for me as well. Um, okay, so went to this event. What happened there? You started thinking differently, sparked a new kind of shift. Yeah, I, I went to the two or three day program, kind of remember now. Um, got really excited by the possibilities of success and the possibilities that I can create an outcome or create a life or design a life that I want to. I wanted to achieve and then I built a friendship up with the person who was working in that company who sold me the ticket to that course and we became friends and then he said hey I'm leaving my role to go work in another company again that was uh, an external company not a success resources company and he moved over there and said hey they're looking for sales staff would you be interested in coming along and at that point, I just wanted to be around success. I, I didn't know what even the role was. I later found out that it was a commission-only role. And it was a commission-only role selling programs on the phone. And I left my, not high-paying job, but I left a job and moved over to that company and started selling programs. So I kind of left the What year was this in? What year was this in? 2003, I did, I did the program in April 2003, and by May 2003, I was in that new role. Okay. Then May 2003, you're in that new role? What happened? So you've had some selling experience, you know, you're selling on the phone, it's another first step. <laughs> very different, so you don't have that face-to-face -face kind of... Yeah, no, look, I'd never had phone experience in selling before, so I turned up, I was... Um, I quickly found my first mentor in that role. He was the sales manager at the time. And typical 2003, there was no real internet or there was no real, you know, social media or anything like that. So we used to get a phone book every day and we would tear out the page in the phone book and it'd get handed around and you'd get your phone book page for the day. You had a phone, there was no computer in front of you. And every day you would make very, very, very cold calls to businesses um, and you were hoping that you got, you didn't get the Z or the Q part of the, um, the phone book at the time. But yeah, we, we really started at the bottom and it was only via the mentoring and the education that I got there that I started to make some money and started to learn and, 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 and teach and, and be teachable to start to hone my skills. So that was really the beginning of this, of this journey, I suppose. Okay. From there, what happened next? So you started making some sales. From there, I started to make some sales. I started to bring in some good money. You know, some months were eight to $10,000 a month. And that was, again, it's all commission only. 
It's 2003. It's very early in a, in a new um, a new role and a new iteration of my life. But I figured out that I, I could influence and persuade people if I shared enough value on what they could get, then I found a way to be able to monetize my conversation. So I learned pretty quickly, especially with the cold call, that you had to have a process, a system you had to stick to. If you didn't stick to that and you didn't offer massive value and you didn't offer a path for them to achieve success, then you were never going to make money. You're never going to pay rent. You're never going to pay for, the, for your car. So I figured that out. So fast forward 18 months, I got to a point where I was quite cocky. I was 24, 25 years old. And I thought, you know what? I think I could do a business like this for myself. So in my back of my mind, I always had the thought was, I never want to work for someone. I want to, I want to have my own business. So I started promoting a speaker, a well-known speaker in the US uh, called Dr. John Maxwell. Yep, had um, written plenty of books. I managed to get him on a deal on a Hillsong annual conference. I managed to get him to come from America, fly here, be on an annual conference at Hillsong, which if any guys listening to this knows, there's about 20,000 people who come to that conference every year. It's a big deal. So I put together a package with him. We sold a continual education package. And in the first month, we did about a million dollars in sales. This was all while still having my job every day in here. My ego took over and I thought, I don't need this job anymore. I'm going to go do that, run that business. And this was the sort of start of some really powerful lessons. Um, The ego kicked in and I thought, how good am I? I've built up a business in a very short amount of time. They created a lot and generated a lot of revenue very quickly based off 20,000 very engaged clients. And I thought, great, this is the new path. I will run this business. We'll, we'll do this kind of thing. Lo and behold, Dr. Dr. John Maxwell had a heart attack only a couple of months later. And my only speaker, my only revenue stream immediately stopped. And I'd let go of the role um, at, the, at the education company. And now I was sitting on a fair bit of cash, but I was sitting there going, great, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? What, what's the next part for me? So from there, I started many different ventures, um, all of them very uh, fruitless, to say the most. Um, everything from perfume distribution business. Um, I was not the founder, but I was the number two guy in a energy drink company that we created from scratch. Um, I was involved in a nightclub. I tested many different things. None of them super passionate about, but something that I thought, I just don't want to go get a job. So you fast forward this probably 2005 to 2008 of some very fruitless ventures in there, but some, some amazing lessons as well. Even with that, you had some pretty cool clients with your fruitless invention, the perfume business. When you say yeah. fruitless, was it profitable or just fruitless? It was very profitable. Here was the business model in a nutshell. I used to have a relationship with somebody who imported all the best perfumes in, in, in the world. He had a very big business here. I would go to him and on consignment, I would get 10 bottles of that, 10 bottles of that, 10 bottles of, you know, um, 
Armani Code and, and, and all the different brands you can think of, and I would put them in my car. I would ring up some of the biggest companies in Australia, Combank, NAB, Macquarie Bank, um, all those kind of guys, and I would say to them, um, Father's Day's around the corner, Mother's Day's around the corner, Christmas is around the corner, Valentine's Day's around the corner. Why don't I come in and set up in one of your boardrooms all of our perfumes? And I used to price them just under retail. So instead of going to Myers or instead of going to DJs, you could come to the boardroom. And some of these companies would have 2,000 employees, 3,000 employees in that location. And an email would go out to everyone saying, hey, between the hours of 11 till 2 today, in the boardroom on level 3, there'll be a company there selling or offering perfume at a discounted rate for Father's Day. What would happen is between those hours, we would move in the vicinity of two to 300 bottles of perfume and I would make about 30% margin on that. So it was, very, it, was, it was great and it was very busy two weeks up to those significant milestones, Father's Day, Christmas, those things. Between those, it was basically there was not much opportunity. Um, but that was a, a unique business that, that I sort of started and, uh, and we did well from. That's cool. It's really cool. Interesting. Very interesting model. Hmm. How were you able to service all those companies? Were you guessing there's different locations and different staff that were doing all the stuff for you? or um, It was very much a one-man band. I used okay. to have one people who might come and help me on the day, um, okay. set it all up, take cash and all that. Um, but yeah, the biggest, the hardest part was actually ringing, cold calling again. Um, the companies and going, hey, we'd love to offer um, quality perfume to your clients at a discounted offer. And I figured out that if I pitched it correctly and I got the right person in the HR department, they could be perceived as the real winner in this. So the company has gone out of its way to bring in this perfume company to offer its staff discounted perfume. So once I figured out my sales pitch, it became very easy because I would pitch it in a way that they would pitch it to their staff is that they're going above and beyond for their staff, offering discounts and bringing this to them. So, so the value exchange, was that you purely emotional value exchange that they feel good about giving to their staff? Correct. So once I figured that out, if I got through to the right person, if there's plenty of gatekeepers in those big businesses, but if I got through to the right person and I could have five minutes on the phone, I could usually feel closed. So that's where I focus a lot of my time. I figured out that if I delegated and got someone at 20 bucks an hour, maybe only 50, $60 for that time frame, I could make a couple of grand and I could pay them 50, 60, $70 for them to be there and, and sell the perfume. So yeah, it was a unique time and a great model to again, hone and bring some of my entrepreneurial thinking to something that I really hadn't seen before. That's cool. With the phone calls you're making, do, do you have any strategies around how you make those calls or is it purely just pick up the phone, make those calls, or do you have any pre kind of engagement strategy? Yeah, look, you know, you, you figure out quickly that when you get a few no's, you need to change your strategy or you need to have a process. Um, so for the first week, I was there scratching my head going, okay, I need to figure out how do I get to the right person articulate this in a very quick time frame that they would see value and go, 
huh, that seems like a win-win. We have no reason to say no for that. Yes, let's make that work. So, again, I wasn't scared of no's. I wasn't, I had experience in cold calling. I believed I had a product or a service that would add value to their clients or their, in this case, their, their staff. And I just knew if I made the calls, I could get enough business. And, and that's the way it worked out. Okay, I believe next, I thought you were doing something with executive consulting and sales processes for events. How did that come about? It came about, um, I'd always still had a passion for personal development, even though I'd, I'd, uh, I'd done a few years in at that business, then I left and, and did my own company. I always had this passion. I was always turning up to an event. I was always catching up with speakers that I knew. I always associated with them. And I could always sell. Well, sorry, I figured out how to sell in that process. So there was a couple of friends who started their own businesses and started doing things with certain speakers. And I'd done quite well out of that speaker, Dr. John Maxwell. So the perception was that I was successful in in having a, a skill set that could maybe teach other people how to sell. So I, I consulted to a few companies and they had some amazing speakers that we used to um, promote there. But again, I figured out if I could consult to these companies and teach them how to do it. In, and in some cases, I would go in there and say, what's the next project you have? And here's an example. We used to have uh, at one of these companies, Jay Abraham was one of the speakers. Uh, and and yeah. fortunate to know and, and be good friends with Jay. But at the time... I. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's an amazing, uh, he's, a, he's a genius, to be honest. But I would bring in my own staff and go, great, Jay Abraham's coming in three months' time. I will come in and I'll bring five staff with me. We'll run that whole project. And we might bring in two and a half, three million dollars in that project and we'll walk out 90 days, 120 days later with six, seven hundred grand in commission from, from running a tour like that. So that was some of the consulting stuff that I'd done. And again, it was very much an entrepreneurial thing. I didn't want to come back in and, and just be on the phones or be a part of a company and be paid a salary for that. It just wasn't my makeup. So I was like, I can come in. I'll take responsibility for the tour. And only if the two are successful, do you pay me all the potential that could come from it? Yes, we would need to cover our staff and, and, and the people we brought in. But if we don't hit a milestone, don't pay me that lofty goal. So that was, again, my mindset of going in there and proving through my own experiences, through my own energy, through my own activation, that if I could make it work, then I'd profit from it. And that's... Oh, based on that. Was that yeah, something that happened today or something that you came about by your own realisation? Sorry, say that one more time. Is that something you learned from Jay at the time or is it something you came about through your own realisations? No, um, I, I learned, I've learned so much from Jay. But um, leading up to that point, to be honest, I really didn't know who Jay was. So it was from my own lessons and learnings and probably what I pinched from some other speakers previous to that. Okay. So at this point, you're doing a lot of sales, you're consulting. I know you then moved into Success Resources. How did that, I'm assuming that came about because you're in the space, they just said, you're really good, you do come work for us or tell us a bit about that story? Here's how it happened. Um, Michael Burnett, who is our, still our global CEO in, in, in Success yeah. Resources, 
he reached out to me just before a Robert Kiyosaki tour in May 2009. And he said, we've got this tour coming up. Um, did you want to be involved with it? And it was probably perfect timing for me. Um, I'd come off uh, a nightclub that, that, that we had and it didn't work and there was uh, a few other things that I was dabbling in. But it was at a point where I really had no consistent cash flow. So he rang me and said, hey, do you want to do this Kiyosaki tour? I need your help. We're going to be running it in Sydney. We're going to be running it in Auckland. And if you come in, you can do three or four months and maybe make 100 grand or so. Um, so I thought, you know what's the right timing? Let's have a look at that. Lo and behold, I came in and the first, we ran that event and in the first month I made 25 grand. Um, I personally bought in 250,000 in sales post the tour and I got paid 10% commission on that. So I thought, here it is. I've always had a passion for personal development and it's been there for three, four, five years previously. I got in and month one, I made 25 grand cash. So I was like, maybe I stick this thing out. Maybe I have a look at this thing and get deeper into it again. So it's fair to say I came back in 2009 in May. I did the Kiyosaki tour. I made some good money quickly over that three month period. And I sat down with Michael and said, hey, how can we formalize this? How can we make this work? But I've got one contingent. I don't want to be paid a salary. I want to be paid for the performance that I bring and I want to have an opportunity to invest in this company. Now, that was what I wanted to do. So I wonder, and I still think about this, I wonder if he said no. He fortunately, uh, and knock on wood, I'm grateful that he did, he said, yes, I'd be open to that. Um, so that was me, the start of this new iteration and still what I do today is involved with success resources, but it was, was May 2009 where that really kicked off. Okay. And you invested in 2013 or when did you? I, the, the investment process actually started a year later. Um, okay. So if you picture this right, I, I had very little money before May 2009. Up and down, I'd lost everything by then. There might have been a couple of grand coming in for, for various odd jobs and those kind of things. Um, but then I started making some good money within 12 months. I put an option down to invest in the business. Uh, within two years, I invested $600,000 into the business, um, for absolute, um, congruency. I didn't have 600. I had 300 in cash. I borrowed 300 from a bank. That's when it was easy to borrow, um, for, for business investments, those things. But in less than two years, I, paid for my lifestyle. It wasn't an elaborate lifestyle, but I'd gone from nothing to being able to put 300 grand cash into a business. Um, and that was about 2012. So you're about almost 30 at that point. Yeah. So, so no, 30 was, was 2010. So I, I did my first um, option in 2010, 2011 to 2012 is where I, I paid all that money. Okay. Where, okay, I know over the, over the career of, over your last minute of your career, you've made a billion in the companies. Is the bulk of that between 2010 to now? Look, 100%. The bulk of it, 100%. The bulk of it was probably between 2013 to today. Um, 
So if you fast track to today, you know, this year we'll do maybe my goal, which is written up here, says 150 million. Um, we're, on, we're on track from the last quarter at about 120 million. So this last quarter, uh, we'll get pretty close to 150 million this year. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to be in a business that we had massive growth. Um, and to give you some idea, when I came back in 2010, uh, 2009, we did 8 million that year. Um, so from 8 million to 150 million this year is a, is a fair bit of growth. I had a conversation about this skill acquisition, investing your skills early, which meant you didn't earn anywhere much as someone that would have been in a traditional kind of job. So they technically overtaking you at that point. But at that point, like 2009, you had an exponential growth. Is that, would that be a fair assumption? Yes. Yeah. And, and it's fair to say I had my entrepreneurial apprenticeship for the first 10 years before that, where it was very much up and down and a lot of down. Yeah. Um, very successful, but also very broke essentially yeah i mean there was waves there where it was like 50 60 70 100 grand coming in a week and you're like how good's this this is great and then be times where there's three months of nothing coming in um and that's the entrepreneurial journey i i'm yet to speak to an entrepreneur um who has some level of success who hasn't been through 50k day and and then how taxes everything and then 400k in deficit so this is the trials and tribulations of an entrepreneur but um, yeah, no, we, we, we're fortunate now through scaling the business quite significantly that um, a particular day could be multi-millions of dollars. Um, a particular hour could be a million dollars. But it took a lot of time to get to that. What's been the biggest differentiator between 09 to now? Is it purely the business model or were you acquiring different skill sets that allowed that exponential growth? Look, there's various things. Um, you've got the, the influence of social media in there at some point, which completely changed the whole trajectory of the business. Um, you had the GFC in there as well. Do you mean most businesses struggled at the GFC in 2009? Uh, and that 2009, 2010 was an amazing time to be in our business because we realised that people's job wasn't that secure anymore. And if they could increase their skill set in and arm themselves with this mentality that, well, I need to have a side hustle. I need to have something else to bring in cash in case my world over here dissolves via my, my corporate job not being in there anymore. So we had some really good growth um, in that period and it allowed us to confidently scale the business. From an outsider perspective, what I'm seeing is you had a really good eye for talent, essentially, whether it be through hip-hop artists, through the speakers from them, they're really, not to discredit what they've already done, but they're easy to sell. They're really valuable assets and they don't often sell that they've got the brand equity that people want to go to the events. Has, has it always been the case? Did you ever deal with speakers that weren't necessarily the right fit or how, how much is that the core part of the business? Yeah, look, you know, social media and LinkedIn always portray the positives of our journey. I mean, I'm yet, I'm yet to see too many social media or Instagram accounts showing someone at rock bottom. <laughs> um, so it's easy to, to assume that I've had some, and, and life's been, been great, but in between some of those successful ventures or successful, um, you know, moments in my career, there's been 
probably 10, you know, per, 10 huge negatives or, or unsuccessful ventures in, in between there. What I figured out is that you've got to keep rolling the dice. You've got to keep swinging the bat. Um, even today, I still have a lot of losses. I, I still have a lot of things where I put a deal together and I'm like, great, this should be great. And it doesn't go the way you, you expect it to. It's just when the wins happen, they trump a lot of the losses. So um, don't be fooled by my, my LinkedIn uh, commentary. There's been plenty of mistakes, failures, hiccups um, of where I picked the wrong horse or I didn't execute correctly or the strategy was completely wrong or there was a governmental change or there was a fundamental change that meant today everything was great, tomorrow everything changed. Um, so so there, there are definitely some losses in there. Well, the speakers have also had their own ups and downs which could have affected you as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, do you mean there was speakers and, and products of speakers that were very successful at the time. Um, there were plenty of stuff that we were selling where it was like, wow, like eBay, for example. I remember being a part of the eBay craze back in the 2010, 11, and 12 where we would do an event and we'd put an eBay speaker on and we would do hundreds of thousands of dollars in a 60-minute time frame. And then all of a sudden eBay stopped and it wasn't so in vogue um, in 2013. And that business went from there to there. So that's one problem you know, gone essentially. Yeah, there's cycles to all at all. Do you mean we're seeing at the moment Amazon as a product is an amazing product and it's getting a lot it's of eyeball. Yeah, so um, that's a product that's doing really well for us. Okay. Now I know you've invested heavily in capabilities of your team and stuff. Can you talk to us a bit more about your philosophy behind that? I think you said six figures into video equipment recently. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, you mean the, the content strategy and, and what you mentioned there is, is a unique one. Um, and I'm kind of the entrepreneur who says, let's make the decision either yes or no. Let's either do this or don't do this. What, again, learning from being on the phone is I'm happy to take a no. I prefer a yes, but don't give me a maybe. I can't, I can't sit on the fence. So for my mentality, um, we were late to the party when it comes to content marketing and doing that kind of thing. But when I made the decision, it was a very quick decision. Let's start getting into building a lot more content around what, who I am, around what the business does, and around some of the speakers that we did. So that investment, we, we put 100,000 plus, plus, plus into a content department just to follow me around, record some of the stuff I do, put out content without having any idea how it would work. But that comes back to the mentality. I'm the type of person who will say yes and figure it out as we go. Um, doesn't mean I'm aloof in spending money and, and just seeing where it goes. I knew I'd figure it out, but I'm not a maybe person. I'm not a sit there and go, well, let's see if we paid that money and we could do that, then it might work. I'm the like, it's a quick yes or a quick no. And in that instance, it was a very quick yes. Um, well, you've had your speakers are very sort of best known for using those kind of strategies. How much of a part, if at all, did they have to play with you rolling down to your own business? Look, I, I observed a lot of these guys running their own content, uh, being an expert. Excuse me. So that all made sense to me. But 
again, I only started this journey in February this year. That was my very first video I've ever done. So some of these people have been doing videos for three, four years. So again, I was late to the party, but when I finally made the decision, it was a very quick decision. Okay. Could you talk us through the whole, what, what is a typical marketing process for a successful resource event and how do you guys actually make money out of these events? Yeah, so for people listening, um, the core part of our business is selling tickets to people to come and experience a Tony Robbins, a Gary Vaynerchuk, a Robert, um, a, you know, a Robert Kiyosaki event or, or someone like that. So for us putting on an event, it's about a, procuring a speaker and about attaining someone. We do the ticket sales, we do the marketing, we do the event management, we we do everything from soup to nuts on, 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 uh, on an event. So fortunately now, social media is such a prevalent part of everyday society and we invested in online and, and making money online from, you know, about a decade plus ago. So this day and age, it's great to be able to work with some of the best brands in our industry and with that comes higher expectations and maybe sometimes larger investments in the talent, but it also brings a brand recognition that when we go live with somebody, the market is already aware of who that person is. There's some kind of association or um, perception that this person has got a great message and can teach me something. So, you know, fortunate that when we go out with the Tony Robbins launch of a program, we know that in the next couple of weeks, we could do a million dollars in ticket sales from that. So, you know, very much the front end engine of ours is social media and putting that awareness and getting it, leaking it out into um, the niche markets that we like to dabble in. And that's kind of the way, that's our, our, our front end machine is really putting our message out there into people's awareness where they're associating with with our industry. How much would you say data has to play with what you do? Do you guys do remarketing, uh, other, other traffic sources other than Facebook? Various, do you mean we, Google? Yeah, we, we spend a fortune on Google, LinkedIn, Instagram, um, affiliates, there's, there's a whole heap of stuff that we do. Um, but it plays a massive part in the front end engine and, and data specifically is key. Um, we know that if we put a paid ad on, on social media, on Facebook, for example, and if we know we don't have certain metrics being met in the first hour, then we know maybe the headline's wrong, the image is wrong, the message, or sometimes the brand around it is wrong. So we have staff in this office just locally who monitor that, and that's their full-time job. It's just monitoring campaigns, monitoring the data, and giving us real-time feedback on the success of each campaign. And, and to give you some idea, we might have 120 campaigns going at any one time. So it'll give you some idea. Now, That's that Facebook, might be, Google, LinkedIn, mixture? Yeah, multiple channels. But it could be multiple events. It could be multiple tours as well. And it could be multiple speakers within the tour. So, yeah, we, we, we have to rely on the data very consciously and, and, and we have to react to that. How granular is it? Do you know the value of subscribers per, I guess, cohort that they've come in from, or was it more, you know, every? We we monitor everything, and, and every talent is different. Um, we know that 
we can acquire a sale online with the Tony Robbins brand at a, at a cheaper rate than we can do it with say a Gary Vee or, or somebody else. So each have their nuances, each have their metrics that go, yep, we're on track and that's within the band that works. Um, but you've got to have a real understanding of A, how to read the data, but B, how to move the needle because of the data. Um, and it's not an easy job, Jimmy. I see a lot of people in my industry maybe secure a good brand, put it out there and believe that just putting the brand or that, that head or that, that face out there will attract the crowd. And it doesn't happen. Jimmy, I famously saw what I think is probably one of the best events I have attended, and it wasn't our event. It had George Clooney, it had Russell Simmons, it had three or four other very significant celebrities. And I bought a ticket to it going, wow, this will be an amazing event. I think this will have three, four, five thousand people. I was shocked to turn up and see that I was one of 300 people in that room. And I look at that and go, there is truly an art. It's more than just getting talent, putting it out there and hoping that everyone comes to it. It's a lot more sophisticated than that. So there's definitely an art. Fortunately, we've been in this business for a long time and we've got some great IP that allows us to, to monitor and measure those metrics and, and act accordingly. How much do you invest in an average event in terms of marketing it? Again, each, each event's different. Um, do you mean we just finished with Gary V? We had 11,000 people on that tour. Um, that tour is multi-million dollars to pull off. Um, and our, our industry, if, if your listeners don't know, you have to pay this money up front. This is not like, oh, Gary, we want to use you, but we'll pay you after the tour. I mean, that doesn't happen, right? So you need, in some He's cases... Like six figures per event, isn't he? Yeah, per look, um, almost, almost. Uh, for us, we've got a great relationship with Gary and we, we partner on a number of businesses and we um, remunerate and we monetize different, on different ends. Um, but to be honest, yeah, you mean Gary would have been paid $2 million plus from us this year yeah. um, just from events that we're doing and business deals that we're doing. So, But each event's different. But it's fair to say that 90 days to 120 days out... We're forking out multi-millions of dollars on everything to run an event with the hope and the prayer that we get the formula right. And not all the time you get it right, but when you do get it right, it, it can be quite fruitful. You have to be paying very close attention to your numbers across those things with cash flow and everything. 100%. Do you mean this is why the data, we, which we mentioned, is so important? Um, I can know within an hour of a launch if this is going to be right and if the messaging's right. And you're personally very close to the data or do you have the guys that... No, I've got a team that, that, yeah. that is very strict and, and we keep a, a, them on a tight leash on what metrics are important. There's plenty, days, yeah, there's plenty of metrics and if you buy into them all, it can be uh, <laughs> and glorious. But there's some real key metrics that we keep very close to and that'll... And, and like I said, if within an hour I can tell... Yeah. We've got it right, and if I've got it right, I can almost predict where I think the tour will get to. Just just having done, you know, hundreds, well, thousands plus events, um, you figure out that, and you you get a feel for what's going to work and what's not. Okay. 
So moving on from that, you have invested in other stuff things as well. You said you're very much about finding the right people and getting them to do what they do best, giving them the capital outlay. What's been your strategy behind that? What kind of things are you invested in? How, where do you see it on the future? Yeah, look, um, again, I, I've got that entrepreneurial flavor, theme, bug. Um, I mean, I had a coffee with, uh, with somebody today and I always kind of either finish a conversation or finish a meeting like that by saying, is there anything else you're working on that maybe we can collaborate together with? That's always been something that I've done and it's paid me very well over the years. But I'm always open to opportunity. Um, I'm yet to find an entrepreneur who doesn't like opportunity. It doesn't like, you know, a, a deal or hearing or, or being involved in deals. So, you know, for me, my antenna is always up. I've always got an ear to the ground. An example of that is I did some sales training with my team this morning and I talked to them about having two things. And initially you have one thing, but the initial thing is what's your million dollar idea? What's your million dollar deal? I believe everyone should have in their pipeline at any one time a million dollar deal on the table. Um, when you've done that a few times, I believe everyone should have the second component, which is everyone should have a billion dollar idea in the pipeline. That's something that I've always lived by and I've always got multiple deals on the go. Doesn't mean they all come off. Nine times out of 10, they don't come off. Um, so for me, I'm always swinging the bat. I know that if I swing the bat enough, the ball will hit the bat. Um, so for me, I'm very deal active. I have a number of deals that come across my desk. I suppose when you're in the success game or education success game. You get very interesting people and very interesting ideas. Yeah, and you get a lot of ideas come over your table. You get a lot of deal flow and a lot of them are a little bit crazy, but every now and then you find one to go, damn, that's got legs. So I've never been void of opportunity. And, but I make sure I, it's consciously a part of my, what I am about. And again, that's why whenever I finish a meeting is, what are you working on that potentially we can collaborate together on? Even if it's outside of your core business, is there anything you think I can add value on? That's a very normal, common part of my meetings. And uh, that served me well over time. That's amazing. That is very exciting. With your... In regards to risk and everything, how do you invest? Do you have a set kind of philosophy on how you put this towards something that's more risky, something that's safer? Look, my philosophy is I'm very much a passive investor. What I mean by that is I'm busy enough with our eight companies here and a few other things that the last thing I want to do is go actively have to work in investments. So I'm very much the, the investor. I like investing in funds. Um, I like investing in stuff where I've got experts who are running that and I don't need to be actively involved. So I've got a number of investments. I've got a number of properties and those things are all passive and I, I don't actively work in those. With the properties, is, is that also investing in somebody who runs that side as in they'll go and find the deals and do it for you? Potentially. I've done that in the past. At the moment, it's just sitting on, on uh, residential uh, property. I actually sold some property in the last two years from a cash perspective. 
Um, I believe we're heading into an interesting time within the real estate market and I sold out at the top of the market and, and are holding some cash at the moment. I think there's going to be some great opportunities specifically in residential property in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, but I think property is, is, is an interesting thing and you've got to be able to pick the cycle. Um, and if you don't pick the cycle, it can be almost a 20 year run of getting the outcome that you're after. Um, so it's, it's being able to pick the trends, but to be honest, it's about getting the right advice. It's about being in proximity to people who are experts in those fields who can help you go, Michael, I think you should sell that property in the Eastern suburbs of Sydney. I think it's reached its potential. I think if you pocket that money now, I think it will be advantageous. So I'm, I'm always trying to get around who is the expert in that space. Tell me about your average day. So do you have family at the moment? I do. I'm married. I have two kids. Um, I have a son who's seven. I have a daughter who's seven months. So she keeps uh, very much on our toes. But uh, I think that one of the things that's really the backbone of what's allowed me to do all these crazy ideas and the things that I do is, is my wife. My wife, Tracy, um, I often say, is not just my life partner, my business partner, my investment partner. Um, and we very much are in this together, despite her being an at-home mum at the moment, she's absolutely an entrepreneur. She has multiple opportunities on the go despite being um, a full-time mum at the moment. But she understands the trajectory that I'm on. She understands the, the plans that we have together. And she is absolutely the backbone of this operation. That's amazing. That is really, really cool. So with that, you've got this all happening what are you going for in the future? You mentioned that you're building into your own brand in a public persona. Are you wanting to be speaking yourself soon or is that... Definitely, that definitely not. Um, I have no interest in, in being on that side of the stage. I often say that I'm happy to be backstage. Um, look, my skill set is not being front of stage. It's, it's finding a opportunity, linking it with an audience who have a need for that opportunity and putting a deal together. That's, that's what I love to do. Um, do you mean I've put over 700 deals together over the last 16 years and that's my skill set. But I'm not oblivious to the fact that this social media trajectory of building influence, building somewhat perception, that I want to be an expert in my space. And to do that, I need to continue to grow myself, my personal brand, but very much I'm building this personal brand in conjunction with the business. And I want to be able to give people the ability to, through my actions on social media, portray my values on what the business will be like. You know what I mean? In the past, um, people may not know who's behind a business or may not know the ethos or the values of the business owner. I think if you're going to invest even as little as a ticket, even a $39 ticket to come to our most basic event. If you can't resonate with the business owner and if the business owner's values are not around something that's important to the client, I feel there's a disconnect. And I feel why we're on such a, a, a good trajectory is that our values are very aligned to what we're portraying. Um, what you see in my everyday activity and the value that I bring is a reflection of the business. So 
That is my sole purpose for growing my brand. It is purely so people get to understand and to feel what success resources is like. We've got two questions to wrap up this interview, I think. With the events, are you guys profitable on the front end or does that come after the speakers have sold their products and services or whatever that might be? And do you guys take a percentage of those product services? I know you said about products, but how does that kind of split work typically? Look, every single one's different. Um, to answer the first part of that question, we have um, events where the front end is very profitable. Um, we have some events where the front end, middle of the funnel, is not profitable, and then you might profit 180 days down the track. So each model has its nuances, um, and it's a bit of a mixture of both. So you need to have your mix right, especially from a cash flow perspective. You need to know which one will go where. You can't have too many in the same row of ones that are going to be 180 days down the track because you may messed up. Cash. Yeah, so you need to dovetail and, and know your cash in, um, uh, cash cycles. Uh, yeah, cash cycles and, and know where you're going to need more cash than, than other times. Um, but ser certain events are very profitable from the beginning and certain events take months and months and months to be profitable. When you say 180 days, is that through people buying themselves? Do you have a sales team following up with them or is it an automated process or mixture of everything? Yeah, look, um, it's a mixture of everything. We have a, a strong sales force here. Um, a lot of that's post-event. So once you go to a Tony Robbins event and you come out of it, they will be there to help you with coaching, mentoring, or maybe some additional programs. That's one way. Um, we're fortunate that through our decade of being online, just one region of our business in Australia does more than a million dollars a month online. So that's great from a cash perspective that that comes in. So we've got various and multiple revenue streams. Um, and, and that was something that I figured out, again, through the John Maxwell era, I had one revenue stream. And I promised myself, and again, when you learn Jay Abraham's methodology, you can never survive long-term on one revenue stream. So I brought that very much into this business, not just locally, but globally. And, so and any... Uh, that pride and have that frequency off. Revenue? No, there was components of it, but not to the degree we've got now. Okay. Um, you know, we're, we can have sales coming on the phone, online. We've got affiliates. We've got partnerships. We've got joint ventures. We've got sales at events. We've got memberships. There's, there's a varying degree of ways that we can monetize and from a cash perspective, create certainty in our cash processes to ensure that if one of those processes changes for whatever reason, there's seven to eight others that can take over from that. Final question. I put people who would be listening to this thing thinking that you people that you serve would be similar to people they serve and there might be other ways that they can help you. Right at this point in time, who would you be wanting to reach out to you and how can they do that? Do you mean to actually engage in some, engage some, in of some, some way? Or some yeah. audiences? Yeah, look, um, Jimmy and I am very bullish on all social media at the moment, but probably the, my favourite at the moment is LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is exactly my target audience. So to give you an example, I've got about 15,000 people on Instagram, but if I have a look in the metrics of it, 
70% of those are overseas. They're never going to buy a ticket to an event in Australia, in Sydney, at any point. So for me, LinkedIn is a real great way that I can connect as a business owner to other business owners who are actually in my demographic, are in my geographical location. Um, so I'd love um, anyone listening to follow me on any of them, but in, if you really want to do business with me or with our, with our company, LinkedIn would be the best way. And the best way to do that is at It's Michael Lane, and that's on all social media platforms. Michael, if you were to be remembered for one thing as your legacy once you pass, what would that be? Wow, it's a really good question. Um, I suppose I'm 38. I haven't really thought about that at this point. But um, look, I think legacy. Um, and, and, and legacy for me is building up a very strong but congruent name. Um, I would like to think that anyone who's worked for me or works for me now over time would think that, um, you know, that Michael Lane guy is a pretty good guy. He helped me. He influenced me. Um, I pride myself on making sure that people around me know that my door's open and I can always help them on their journey, even if it's got nothing to do with the business we're in. So for me, legacy is actually an important um, aspect of who I am and what I'm building. Um, there's been plenty of opportunities where I could have left this role and gone and taken a lot more money in other industries. Um, I've had various opportunities to do that. But for me, money is not the number one driver. Um, my name is really important to me. My family is really important to me. So I've chosen my passion over profit. Um, the money is secondary. When you have a taste of money and you realize that it's fleeting and the happiness that you get from having money dissipates very quickly, you realize that it's not about the money. It's about doing something you love every day. Um, so I would hope to think that if my legacy is something that people would look back and go, he was a good, genuine guy who helped me and uh, hopefully I was a bit of fun to bear around. There you have it. Guys, thank you, Michael, for joining us on the show today. If you want to connect with him, go do so on LinkedIn, as we've mentioned. And please go to some of these events. If you haven't already been to a lot of these speakers, they are transformational. He's transformed his life. I've been to some of these events myself in the past, and they are incredible. At the very least, you will learn some incredible sales skills as well. So on all fronts, amazing company doing amazing things and an amazing gentleman that we've just spoken today. So thank you all. and. Uh, See you all in the very next episode. Thanks, Joss.